You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, chapters 11 and 12 from The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. As a prelude to our story today, I thought I'd share an article with you. This one's by Robert McCrum, written Monday, September 22, 2014. It's under the header, The 100 Best Novels, number 53, The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway's first and best novel makes an escape to the 1920s Spain to explore courage, cowardice, and manly authenticity. In Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris, Corey Stoll makes a scene-stealing appearance as the young Ernest Hemingway, tough guy modernist and a friend of Gertrude Stein. It's a cameo grounded in the truth that, for one of America's 20th century greats, Paris in the 20s was a source of artistic liberation. It was also the setting for the first section of Hemingway's first and best novel, published in the UK as Fiesta. The novel, a roman en clef, describing an anguished love affair between the expatriate American war veteran Jake Barnes and Lady Brett Ashley, a femme fatale representative in the writer's mind of 1920s womanhood, is mostly located in Spain, Hemingway's favorite country. For some critics, the heart of the novel is the bullfight, and how each character responds to the experience of the corrida. At the same time, the escape into the wild is a great American theme that recurs in the works of Hawthorne, Melville, and Twain. In addition, The Sun Also Rises, like most novels of the 1920s, is a response to the author's recent wartime service. The key to Hemingway, the thing that unlocks the most important doors to his creative life, was a deeper, more personal darkness his complicated experience with the First World War. There are two versions. Either he was rejected for poor eyesight, or he failed to enlist and instead joined up as an ambulance driver. Each way, in the short term, he was wounded by the shame of rejection and cowardice. However, once with the Red Cross, Hemingway got as badly injured as if he'd been in combat. Thereafter, throughout his life, he craved the company of risk-takers, bullfighters or big-game hunters, and longed to be accepted by them. Courage, cowardice, and manly authenticity in extremists became his themes. Perhaps this is also the inspiration for his famously hard-boiled prose. The best of Hemingway's fiction, at its purest and most influential, is found in his stories. But this first novel is also a literary landmark that earns its reputation as a modern classic. And now Chapter 11 of The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. It was baking hot in the square when we came out after lunch with our bags and the rod case to go to Burgett. 
"'People were on top of the bus, and others were climbing up a ladder. "'Bill went up, and Robert sat beside Bill to save a place for me, "'and I went back in the hotel to get a couple of bottles of wine to take with us. "'When I came out, the bus was crowded. "'Men and women were sitting on all the baggage and boxes on top, "'and the women all had their fans going in the sun. "'It certainly was hot. "'Robert climbed down and fitted into the place he had saved "'on the one wooden seat that ran across the top.' Robert Cohn stood in the shade of the arcade, waiting for us to start. A basque with a big leather wine bag in his lap lay across the top of the bus in front of our seat, leaning back against our legs. He offered the wineskin to Bill and to me, and when I tipped it up to drink, he imitated the sound of a klaxon motor horn so well and so suddenly that I spilled some of the wine, and everybody laughed. He apologized and made me take another drink. He made the klaxon again a little later, "'and it fooled me the second time. "'He was very good at it. "'The Basques liked it. "'The man next to Bill was talking to him in Spanish, "'and Bill was not getting it, "'so he offered the man one of the bottles of wine. "'The man waved it away. "'He said it was too hot, "'and he had drunk too much for lunch. "'When Bill offered the bottle a second time, "'he took a long drink, "'and then the bottle went all over that part of the bus. "'Everyone took a drink very politely, "'and then they made us cork it up and put it away.' They all wanted us to drink from their leather wine bottles. They were peasants going up into the hills. Finally, after a couple more false klaxons, the bus started, and Robert Cohn waved goodbye to us, and all the Basques waved goodbye to him. As soon as we started out on the road outside of town, it was cool. It felt nice riding high up and close under the trees. The bus went quite fast and made a good breeze. "'and as we went out along the road "'with the dust powdering the trees and down the hill, "'we had a fine view, back through the trees, "'of the town rising up from the bluff above the river. "'The basque lying against my knees "'pointed out the view at the neck of the wine bottle "'and winked at us. "'He nodded his head. "'Pretty nice, eh?' "'These basques are swell people,' Bill said. "'The basque lying against my legs "'was tanned the color of saddle leather. "'He wore a black smock like all the rest.' There were wrinkles in his tanned neck. He turned around and offered his wine bag to Bill. Bill handed him one of our bottles. The Basque wagged a forefinger at him and handed the bottle back, slapping in the cork with the palm of his hand. He shoved the wine bag up. Arriba! Arriba! he said. Lift it up! Lift it up! Bill raised the wineskin and let the stream of wine spurt out and into his mouth. His head tipped back. When he stopped drinking and tipped the leather bottle down, a few drops ran down his chin. No, no, several Basques said. Not like that. One snatched the bottle away from the owner, who was himself about to give a demonstration. He was a young fellow, and he held the wine bottle at full arm's length and raised it high up, squeezing the leather bag with his hand so the stream of wine hissed into his mouth. He held the bag out there, the wine making a flat, hard trajectory into his mouth and he kept on swallowing smoothly and regularly. "'Hey!' the owner of the bottle shouted. "'Whose wine is that?' The drinker waggled his little finger at him and smiled at us with his eyes. Then he bit the stream off sharp, made a quick lift with the wine bag, and lowered it down to the owner. He winked at us. The owner shook the wineskin sadly. We passed through a town and stopped in front of the posada, and the driver took on several packages. Then we started on again, and outside the town the road commenced to mount. 
"'We were going through farming country "'with rocky hills that sloped down into the fields. "'The grain fields went up the hillsides. "'Now as we went higher, "'there was a wind blowing the grain. "'The road was white and dusty, "'and the dust rose under the wheels "'and hung in the air behind us. "'The road climbed up into the hills "'and left the rich grain fields below. "'Now there were only patches of grain "'on the bare hillsides "'and on each side of the watercourses.' "'we turned sharply out to the side of the road "'to give room to pass a long string of six mules, "'following one after the other, "'hauling a high-hooded wagon loaded with freight. "'The wagon and the mules were covered with dust. "'Close behind was another string of mules and another wagon. "'This was loaded with lumber, "'and the arero driving the mules "'leaned back and put on the thick wooden brakes as we passed. Up here the country was quite barren, and the hills were rocky and hard-baked clay furrowed by the rain. We came around a curve into a town, and on both sides opened out a sudden green valley. A stream went through the center of the town, and fields of grapes touched the houses. The bus stopped in front of a posada, and many of the passengers got down, and a lot of the baggage was unstrapped from the roof under the big tarpaulins and lifted down. Bill and I got down and went into the posada. There was a low, dark room with saddles and harness, and hay forks made of white wood, and clusters of canvas rope-soled shoes, and hams, and slabs of bacon, and white garlics, and long sausages hanging from the roof. It was cool and dusky, and we stood in front of a long wooden counter with two women behind it serving drinks. Behind them were shelves stacked with supplies and goods. We each had an aguardiente and paid forty centimes for the two drinks. I gave the woman fifty centimes to make a tip, and she gave me back the copper piece, thinking I had misunderstood the price. Two of our Basques came in and insisted on buying a drink. So they bought a drink, and then we bought a drink, and then they slapped us on the back and bought another drink. Then we bought. Then we all went out into the sunlight and the heat and climbed back on top of the bus. There was plenty of room now for everyone to sit on the seat, and the Basque who had been lying on the tin roof now sat between us. The woman who had been serving drinks came out wiping her hands on her apron and talked to somebody inside the bus. Then the driver came out swinging two flat leather mail patches and climbed up, and everybody waving, we started off. The road left the Green Valley at once, and we were up in the hills again. Bill and the wine bottle Basque were having a conversation. A man leaned over from the other side of the seat and asked in English, "'You're Americans?' "'Sure. I've been there,' he said." Forty years ago. He was an old man, as brown as the others, with the stubble of a white beard. Well, how was it? What you say? How was America? Oh, I was in California. It was fine. Why did you leave? What did you say? Why did you come back here? Oh, I come back to get married. I was going to go back, but my wife, she don't like to travel. Where are you from? Kansas City. I've been there, he said. I've been in Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, Denver, Los Angeles, Salt Lake City. He named them carefully. How, how long were you over? Fifteen years. Then I came back here and got married. Have a drink? All right, he said. You can't get this in America, eh? "'Well, there's plenty if you can pay for it.' "'What'd you come over here for?' 
"'We're going to the fiesta at Pamplona. "'You like the bullfights?' "'Sure, don't you?' "'Yes,' he said. "'I guess I like them.' "'Then after a little, "'Where do you go now?' "'Up to Burgett to fish.' "'Well,' he said, "'I hope you catch something.' "'He shook hands and turned around "'to the back seat again. "'The other Basques had been impressed. "'He sat back comfortably and smiled at me "'when I turned around to look at the country.' but the effort of talking American seemed to have tired him. He didn't say anything after that. The bus climbed steadily up the road. The country was barren, and rocks stuck up to the clay. There was no grass beside the road. Looking back, we could see the country spread out below. Far back, the fields were squares of green and brown on the hillsides. Making the horizon were the brown mountains. They were strangely shaped. As we climbed higher, the horizon kept changing. As the bus ground slowly up the road, we could see other mountains coming up in the south. Then the road came over the crest, flattened out, and went into a forest. It was a forest of cork oaks, and the sun came through the trees in patches, and there were cattle grazing back in the trees. We went through the forest, and the road came out and turned along a rise of land, and out ahead of us was a rolling green plain, with dark mountains beyond it. These were not like the brown, heat-baked mountains we had left behind. These were wooded, and there were clouds coming down from them. The green plain stretched off. It was cut by fences, and the white of the road showed through the trunks of a double line of trees that crossed the plain toward the north. As we came to the edge of the rise, we saw the red roofs and white houses of Burgett ahead strung out on the plain, and away off on the shoulder of the first dark mountain was the gray metal-sheathed roof of the monastery of Roncesvalles. "'There's Roncesvalles,' I said. "'Where?' "'Way off there where the mountain starts.' "'It's cold up here,' Bill said. "'It's high,' I said. "'It must be twelve hundred meters.' "'It's awful cold,' Bill said. The bus leveled down onto the straight line of road that ran to Burgett. We passed a crossroads and crossed a bridge over a stream. The houses of Burgett were along both sides of the road. There were no side streets. We passed the church and the schoolyard, and the bus stopped. We got down, and the driver handed down our bags and the rod case. A carabiner in his cocked hat and yellow leather cross straps came up. What's in there? He pointed to the rod case. I opened it and showed him. He asked to see our fishing permits, and I got them out. He looked at the date, and then waved us on. Is that all right? I asked. Yes, of course. We went up the street, past the whitewashed stone houses, families sitting in their doorways watching us, to the inn. The fat woman who ran the inn came out from the kitchen and shook hands with us. She took off her spectacles, wiped them, and put them on again. It was cold in the inn, and the wind was starting to blow outside. The woman sent a girl upstairs with us to show the room. There were two beds, a washstand, a clothes chest, and a big framed steel engraving of Nuestra Señora de Roncesvalles. The wind was blowing against the shutters. The room was on the north side of the inn. We washed, put on sweaters, and came downstairs into the dining room. It had a stone floor, low ceiling, and was oak-paneled. The shutters were up, and it was so cold you could see your breath. "'My God!' said Bill. "'It can't be this cold tomorrow. I'm not going to wait a stream in this weather.' 
There was an upright piano in the far corner of the room beyond the wooden tables, and Bill went over and started to play. "'I got to play to keep warm,' he said. I went out to find the woman and ask her how much the room and board was. She put her hands under her apron and looked away from me. Twelve pesetas. Why, we only paid that in Pamplona. She didn't say anything, just took off her glasses and wiped them on her apron. That's too much, I said. We didn't pay more than that at a big hotel. We've put in a bathroom, she said. Haven't you got anything cheaper? Not in the summer. Now is the big season. We were the only people in the inn. Well, I thought, it's only a few days. Is the wine included? Oh, yes. Well, I said, that's all right then. I went back to Bill. He blew his breath at me to show how cold it was and went on playing. I sat at one of the tables and looked at the pictures on the wall. There was one panel of rabbits, dead, one of pheasants, also dead, and one panel of dead ducks. The panels were all dark and smoky-looking. There was a cupboard full of liquor bottles. I looked at them all. Bill was still playing. "'How about a hot rum punch?' he said. "'This isn't going to keep me warm permanently.' I went out and told the woman what a rum punch was and how to make it. In a few minutes, a girl brought a stone pitcher steaming into the room. Bill came over from the piano, and we drank the hot punch and listened to the wind. There isn't too much rum in that. I went over to the cupboard and brought the rum bottle and poured a half tumblerful into the pitcher. Direct action, said Bill. It beats legislation. The girl came in and laid the table for supper. It blows like hell up here, Bill said. The girl brought in a big bowl of hot vegetable soup and the wine. We had fried trout afterward and some sort of a stew and a big bowl full of wild strawberries. We did not lose money on the wine, and the girl was shy but nice about bringing it. The old woman looked in once and counted the empty bottles. After supper we went upstairs and smoked and read in bed to keep warm. Once in the night I woke and heard the wind blowing. It felt good to be warm and in bed. We'll return with Chapter 12 of The Sun Also Rises right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 12 When I woke in the morning I went to the window and looked out. It had cleared and there were no clouds on the mountains. Outside under the window were some carts and an old diligence. The wood of the roof cracked and split by the weather. It must have been left from the days before the motor buses. A goat hopped up on one of the carts and then to the roof of the diligence. He jerked his head at the other goats below, and when I waved at him, he bounded down. Bill was still sleeping, so I dressed, put on my shoes outside in the hall, and went downstairs. No one was stirring downstairs, so I unbolted the door and went out. It was cool outside in the early morning, and the sun had not yet dried the dew that had come when the wind died down. I hunted around in the shed behind the inn and found a sort of mattock and went down toward the stream to try and dig some worms for bait. The stream was clear and shallow, but it did not look droughty. On the grassy bank where it was damp, I drove the mattock into the earth and loosened a chunk of sod. There were worms underneath. They slid out of sight as I lifted the sod, and I dug carefully and got a good many. Digging at the edge of the damp ground, I filled two empty tobacco tins with worms and sifted dirt into them. 
"'The goats watched me dig. "'When I went back into the inn, "'the woman was down in the kitchen, "'and I asked her to get coffee for us "'and told her that we wanted a lunch. "'Bill was awake and sitting on the edge of the bed. "'I saw you out the window,' he said. "'Didn't want to interrupt you. "'What were you doing? "'Burying your money?' "'You lazy bum. "'Been working for the common good? "'Splendid. "'I want you to do that every morning.' "'Come on,' I said. "'Get up.' "'What? "'Get up! "'I never get up.' "'He climbed into bed "'and pulled the sheet up to his chin. "'Try and argue me into getting up.' "'I went on looking for the tackle "'and putting it all together in the tackle bag. "'Aren't you interested?' "'Bill asked. "'I'm going down to eat.' Eat! Why didn't you say eat? I thought you just wanted me to get up for fun. Eat! Fine. Now you're reasonable. You go out and dig some more worms and I'll be right down. I'll go to hell. Work for the good of all. Bill stepped into his underclothes. Show irony and pity. I started out of the room with the tackle bag, the nets, and the rod case. Hey, come back. I put my head in the door. "'Aren't you going to show a little irony and pity?' "'I thumbed my nose. "'That's not irony.' "'As I went downstairs, I heard Bill singing, "'Irony and pity, when you're feeling, "'Oh, give them irony and give them pity. "'Oh, give them irony. "'When they're feeling, just a little irony, just a little pity.' "'He kept on singing until he came downstairs. "'The tune was The Bells Are Ringing for Me and My Gal.' I was reading a week old Spanish paper. What's all this irony and pity? What? Don't you know about irony and pity? No. Who got it up? Everybody. They're mad about it in New York. It's just like the Fratellinis used to be. The girl came in with the coffee and buttered toast. Or rather, it was bread toasted and buttered. Ask if she's got any jam, Bill said. "'Be ironical with her. "'Have you got any jam?' "'That's not ironical. "'I wish I could talk Spanish. "'The coffee was good, "'and we drank it out of big bowls. "'The girl brought in a glass dish of raspberry jam. "'Thank you.' "'Hey, that's not the way,' Bill said. "'Say something ironical. "'Make some crack about Primo de Rivera. "'I could ask you what kind of a jam "'they think they've gotten into in the river. "'Poor.' "'said Bill. Very poor. You can't do it. That's all. You don't understand irony. You have no pity. Say something pitiful. "'Let me see. Robert Cohn. That's not bad. That's better. Now why is Cohn pitiful? Be ironic.' He took a big gulp of coffee. "'Ah, hell,' I said. "'It's too early in the morning.' "'There you go.' "'And you claim you want to be a writer, too. "'You're only a newspaper man, an expatriated newspaper man. "'You ought to be ironical the minute you get out of bed. "'You ought to wake up with your mouth full of pity.' "'Go on,' I said. "'Who do you, who do you get this stuff from?' "'Everybody. Don't you read? "'Don't you ever see anybody? "'You know what you are? You're an expatriate. "'Why don't you live in New York? "'Then you'd know these things.' "'What do you want me to do? "'Go over there and tell you every year?' "'Drink some more coffee,' I said. "'Good. Coffee's good for you. "'It's the caffeine in it. "'Caffeine!' 
We're here. Caffeine puts a man on her horse and a woman in his grave. You know what's the trouble with you? You're an expatriate, one of the worst type. Haven't you heard that? Nobody that ever left their own country ever wrote anything worth printing, not even in the newspapers. He drank the coffee. You're an expatriate. You've lost touch with the soil. You get precious. Fake European standards have ruined you. You drink yourself to death. You become obsessed by sex. You spend all your time talking, not working. You're an expatriate, see? You hang around cafes. Yeah, that sounds like a swell life, I said. When do I work? You don't work. One group's saying that women support you. Another group claims you're impotent. No, I said. I just had an accident. Never mention that, Will said. That's the sort of thing that can't be spoken of. That's what you ought to work up into a mystery, like Henry's bicycle. He had been going splendidly, but he stopped. I was afraid he thought he'd hurt me with that crack about being impotent. I wanted to start him again. It wasn't a bicycle, I said. He was riding horseback. Oh, yeah? I heard it was a tricycle. Well, I said, a plane is sort of like a tricycle. The joystick works the same way. But you don't pedal it. No, I said. I guess you don't pedal it. Let's lay off that, Bill said. All right. I was just standing up for the tricycle. I think he's a good rider, too, Bill said. And you're a hell of a good guy. Anybody ever tell you you're a good guy? I'm not a good guy. Listen, you're a hell of a good guy. And I'm fonder of you than anybody on earth. I couldn't tell you that in New York. It'd mean I was a faggot. That was what the Civil War was about. Abraham Lincoln was a faggot. He was in love with General Grant. So was Jefferson Davis. Lincoln just freed the slaves on a bet. The Dred Scott case was framed by an anti-saloon league. Sex explains it all. The Colonel's Lady and Judy O'Grady are lesbians under their skin. He stopped. Want to hear some more? Shoot, I said. I don't know any more. Tell you more at lunch. Old Bill, I said. You burn! We packed the lunch and two bottles of wine in the rucksack, and Bill put it on. I carried the rod case and the landing net slung over my back. We started up the road and then went across a meadow and found a path that crossed the fields and went toward the woods on the slope of the first hill. We walked across the fields on the sandy path. The fields were rolling and grassy, and the grass was short from the sheep grazing. The cattle were up in the hills. We heard their bells in the woods. The path crossed a stream on a foot log. The log was surfaced off, and there was a sapling bent across for a rail. In the flat pool beside the stream, tadpoles spotted the sand. We went up a steep bank and across the rolling fields. Looking back, we saw Burgett, white houses and red roofs, and the white road with a truck going along it and the dust rising. Beyond the fields, we crossed another faster-flowing stream. A sandy road led down to the ford and beyond into the woods. The path crossed the stream on another footlog below the ford and joined the road, and we went into the woods. It was a beech wood, and the trees were very old. Their roots bulked above the ground, and the branches were twisted. We walked on the road between the thick trunks of the old beeches, and the sunlight came through the leaves in light patches on the grass. The trees were big, and the foliage was thick, 
but it was not gloomy. There was no undergrowth, only the smooth grass, very green and fresh, and the big gray trees well spaced as though it were a park. This is country, Bill said. The road went up a hill, and we got into thick woods, and the road kept on climbing. Sometimes it dipped down, but rose again steeply. All the time we heard the cattle in the woods. Finally the road came out on top of the hills. We were on the top of the height of land that was the highest part of the range of wooded hills we had seen from Burgett. There were wild strawberries growing on the sunny side of the ridge in a little clearing in the trees. Ahead the road came out of the forest and went along the shoulder of the ridge of hills. The hills ahead were not wooded, and there were great fields of yellow gorse. Way off we saw the steep bluffs, dark with trees and jutting with gray stone, that marked the course of the Arati River. We have to follow this road along the ridge, cross these hills, go through the woods on the far hills, and come down to the Irati Valley. I pointed out to Bill. That's a hell of a hike. It's too far to go and fish and come back the same day comfortably. Comfortably, that's a nice word. We'll have to go like hell to get there and back and have any fishing at all. It was a long walk, and the country was very fine, but we were tired when we came down the steep road that led out of the wooded hills into the valley of the Rio de la Fabrica. The road came out from the shadow of the woods into the hot sun. Ahead was a river valley. Beyond the river was a steep hill. There was a field of buckwheat on the hill. We saw a white house under some trees on the hillside. It was very hot, and we stopped under some trees beside a dam that crossed the river. Bill put the pack against one of the trees, and we jointed up the rods, put on the reels, tied on leaders, and got ready to fish. "'You sure this thing has trout in it?' Bill asked. "'Yeah, it's full of them. "'I'm going to fish a fly. "'You got any McGinty's?' "'Yeah, there's some in there. "'You going to fish bait?' "'Yeah, I'm going to fish the dam here. "'Well, I'll take the fly book then.' "'He tied on a fly.' "'Where'd I better go? Up or down?' "'Down is the best. There's plenty up above, too, though.' Bill went down the bank. "'Take a worm can.' "'No, I don't want one. If they won't take a fly, I'll just flick it around.' Bill was down below watching the stream. "'Say!' he called up against the noise of the dam. "'How about putting the wine in that spring up the road?' "'All right,' I shouted. "'Bill waved his hand and started down the stream. "'I found the two wine bottles in the pack "'and carried them up the road to where the water of a spring "'flowed out of an iron pipe. "'There was a board over the spring, and I lifted it, "'and, knocking the corks firmly into the bottles, "'lowered them down into the water. "'It was so cold my hand and wrist felt numbed. "'I put back the slab of wood "'and hoped nobody would find the wine.' I got my rod that was leaning against the tree, took the bait can and landing net, and walked out onto the dam. It was built to provide a head of water for driving logs. The gate was up, and I sat on one of the squared timbers and watched the smooth apron of water before the river tumbled into the falls. In the white water at the foot of the dam it was deep. As I baited up, a trout shot up out of the white water into the falls and was carried down. Before I could finish baiting, another trout jumped at the falls, making the same lovely arc and disappearing into the water that was thundering down. 
I put on a good-sized sinker and dropped into the white water close to the edge of the timbers of the dam. I did not feel the first trout strike. When I started to pull up, I felt that I had one and brought him, fighting and bending the rod almost double, out of the boiling water at the foot of the falls and swung him up and onto the dam. He was a good trout, and I banged his head against the timber so that he quivered out straight and then slipped him into my bag. While I had him on, several trout had jumped at the falls. As soon as I baited up and dropped in again, I hooked another and brought him in the same way. In a little while I had six. They were all about the same size. I laid them out, side by side, all their heads pointing the same way, and looked at them. They were beautifully colored and firm and hard from the cold water. It was a hot day, so I slit them all and shucked out the insides, gills and all, and tossed them over across the river. I took the trout ashore, washed them in the cold, smoothly heavy water above the dam, and then picked some ferns and packed them all in the bag. Three trout on a layer of ferns, then another layer of ferns, then three more trout, then covered them with ferns. They looked nice in the ferns, and now the bag was bulky, and I put it in the shade of the tree. It was very hot on the dam, so I put my worm can in the shade with the bag, and got a book out of the pack, and settled down under the tree to read until Bill should come up for lunch. It was a little past noon, and there was not much shade, but I sat against the trunk of two of the trees that grew together and read. The book was something by A.E.W. Mason, and I was reading a wonderful story about a man who had been frozen in the Alps and then fallen into a glacier and disappeared, and his bride was going to wait 24 years exactly for his body to come out on the moraine, while their true love waited too, and they were still waiting when Bill came up. "'You get any?' he asked. He had his rod and his bag and his net all in one hand, and he was sweating. I hadn't heard him come up because of the noise from the dam. "'Yeah, I got six. What'd you get?' Bill sat down, opened up his bag, laid a big trout on the grass. He took out three more, each one a little bigger than the last, and laid them side by side in the shade from the tree. His face was sweaty and happy. "'How are yours?' "'Smaller. Well, let's see them. They're packed. How big are they, really? They're all about the size of your smallest. You're not holding out on me? I wish I were. You get them all on worms?' Yes. You lazy bum. Bill put the trout in the bag and started for the river, swinging the open bag. He was wet from the waist down, and I knew he must have been wading the stream. I walked up the road and got out the two bottles of wine. They were cold. Moisture beaded on the bottles as I walked back to the trees. I spread the lunch on a newspaper and uncorked one of the bottles and leaned the other against a tree. Bill came up drying his hands his bag plump with ferns. "'Let's see that bottle,' he said. He pulled the cork and tipped up the bottle and drank. "'Phew! That makes my eyes ache.' "'Let's try it.' The wine was icy cold and tasted faintly rusty. "'That's not such filthy wine,' Bill said. "'The cold helps it,' I said. We unwrapped the little parcels of lunch. "'Chicken!' Ah, oh, there's hard-boiled eggs. Find any salt? First the egg, said Bill. Then the chicken. Even Brian can see that. He's dead. I read it in the paper yesterday. No. 
Not really. Yes, Brian's dead. Bill laid down the egg he was peeling. Gentlemen, he said, and unwrapped a drumstick from a piece of newspaper. I reversed the order, for Brian's sake, as a tribute to the great commoner, first the chicken, then the egg. I wonder what day God created the chicken. Oh, said Bill, working on the drumstick. How should we know? We should not question. Our stay on earth is not for long. Let us rejoice and believe and give thanks. Eat an egg. Bill gestured with the drumstick in one hand and the bottle of wine in the other. Let us rejoice in our blessings. Let us utilize the fowls of the air. Let us utilize the product of the vine. Will you utilize the little brother? After you, brother. Bill took a long drink. Utilize a little, brother. He handed me the bottle. Let us not doubt, brother. Let us not pry into the holy mysteries of the hen coop with simian fingers. Let us accept on faith and simply say, I want you to join with me in saying, What shall we say, brother? He pointed the drumstick at me and went on. Let me tell you. We will say, and I for one am proud to say, and I want you to say with me, On your knees, brother. Let no man be ashamed to kneel here in the great out-of-doors. Remember the woods were God's first temples. Let us all kneel and say, Don't eat that, lady. That's Mencken. Here, I said, utilize a little of this. We uncorked the other bottle. What's the matter? I said. Didn't you like Brian? I love Brian, said Bill. We were like brothers. Where did you know him? He and Mencken and I all went to Holy Cross together. And Frankie Fritsch. It's a lie. Frankie Frisch went to Fordham. Well, I said, I went to Loyola with Bishop Manning. It's a lie, Bill said. I went to Loyola with Bishop Manning myself. You're cockeyed, I said. On wine? Why not? It's the humidity, Bill said. They ought to take this damn humidity away. Have another shot. Is this all we've got? Yep, just the two bottles. Do you know what you are? Bill looked at the bottle affectionately. No, I said. You're in the pay of the Anti-Saloon League. I went to Notre Dame with Wayne B. Wheeler. It's a lie, said Bill. I went to Austin Business College with Wayne B. Wheeler. He was class president. Well, I said, the saloon must go. You're right there, old classmate, Bill said. The saloon must go, and I will take it with me. We lay with our hands in the shade and looked up into the trees. You asleep? Nah, Bill said. I was thinking. I shut my eyes. It felt good lying on the ground. Say, Bill said, what about this Brett business? Yeah, what about it? Were you ever in love with her? Sure. For how long? Off and on, a hell of a long time. Oh, hell, Bill said. I'm sorry, fella. It's all right, I said. I don't give a damn anymore. Really? Yeah, really. Only I'd a hell of a lot rather not talk about it. You aren't sore, I asked you. 
Why the hell should I be? I'm going to sleep, Bill said. He put a newspaper over his face. Listen, Jake, he said. Are you really a Catholic? Yeah, technically. What does that mean? I don't know. All right, I'll go to sleep now, he said. Don't keep me awake by talking so much. I went to sleep, too. When I woke up, Bill was packing the rucksack. It was late in the afternoon, and the shadow from the trees was long and went out over the dam. I was stiff from sleeping on the ground. What'd you do, wake up? Bill asked. Why didn't you spend the night? I stretched and rubbed my eyes. I had a lovely dream, Bill said. I don't remember what it was about, but it was a lovely dream. I don't think I dreamt. You ought to try it, Bill said. All our biggest businessmen have been dreamers. Look at Ford. Look at Coolidge. Look at Rockefeller. Look at Joe Davidson. I disjointed my rod and Bill's and packed them in the rod case. I put the reels in the tackle bag. Bill had packed the rucksack and we put one of the trout bags in. I carried the other. Well, said Bill, have we got everything? The worms. Your worms. Put them in there. He had the pack on his back, and I put the worm cans in one of the outside flap pockets. You got everything now? I looked around on the grass at the foot of the elm trees. Yes. We started up the road into the woods. It was a long walk home to Burgett, and it was dark when we came down across the fields to the road, and along the road between the houses of the town, their windows lighted, to the inn. We stayed five days at Burgett and had good fishing. The nights were cold and the days were hot, and there was always a breeze even in the heat of the day. It was hot enough so that it felt good to wade in a cold stream, and the sun dried you when you came out and sat on the bank. We found a stream with a pool deep enough to swim in. In the evenings we played three-handed bridge with an Englishman named Harris, who had walked over from St. Jean Port and was stopping at the inn for the fishing. He was very pleasant and went with us twice to the Arati River. There was no word from Robert Cohn, nor from Brett and Mike. Join us next week Sunday night for chapters 13 and 14 from Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. If you're enjoying our story, please do take a moment, Apple listeners, and send us a review for 1001 Greatest Love Stories and our current novel, The Sun Also Rises. We appreciate reviews and they help new listeners find us. Until next Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.